This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Dave Reepstein, and I'm joining you here on Sirius XM Channel 111, which I do every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, and we are replayed throughout the week. All I can say is, fly, Eagles, fly. Man, what a great Super Bowl we had yesterday. It was unbelievable. Just the excitement in this city and Philadelphia is just incredible. I will say every year I host a Super Bowl party for marketing faculty at my house. And normally what happens is it's chat, 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 chat. And then a commercial comes on and everybody's quiet. And we spend our time watching the commercials. This was a strange one because the Eagles were finally in the Super Bowl and everybody was paying attention and nobody was leaving early. It was really, really exciting. I will tell you, I made so much food and the food didn't even get eaten because everybody was busy watching the game, and really, really exciting. Uh, So it is Fly, Eagles, Fly. I will tell you, I have created my own term, and I want to copyright it because I think it's so so appropriate. And and, and so I've got to go ahead and use it, and I'm going to do it here. But I'm going to call this city um, Sore Winners. Now, that's... S-O-A-R, because our eagles are flying high and we are sore winners. And it is the appropriate way to express who we are and how we're feeling. So that's great. I want to come back in the second half of this program and uh, and talk about some of the Super Bowl and in particular some of the advertising that we saw on the Super Bowl. But before we do that, I want to introduce our first guest that we're going to have, who happens to be somebody that I knew when she was a student here, and now she's gone off to do all sorts of interesting things. So it's Shaz Kong, who is the author of The Closer, a former Nike employee, who is going to be uh, with us in the first half. And we're going to be able to hear what it is that she's been doing and hear about her book called The Closer, which I will tell you is a very interesting book. And at any time... You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. Let me remind you, you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on SiriusXM111, and we're talking to to Shaz Kong. Shaz, welcome. Glad to have you on the phone. Thanks, Dave. I'm happy to be here. And uh, delighted to uh, to be chatting with you. Did you watch the Super Bowl? I did. It was so exciting. I, I mean, that was one of the best Super Bowls in a long time. I've got to believe it was one of the best Super Bowls, even if you're not an Eagles fan. And and I don't know, are you an Eagles fan? I'm, I don't follow the Eagles religiously, but I was rooting for them. I definitely wanted them to win because, you know, I went to school in Philadelphia, so I'd like to see some glory brought to the city. Yeah, well, you should have a little bit of pride in that. So um, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about the Super Bowl and find out more about that. But um, I want to hear some about your background. And I I mentioned that you had uh, worked at Nike, but tell us a little bit about your background before we start talking about Nike and start talking about your book. 
Sure. Well, I actually I started my career as a, as a research scientist in the food industry, inventing uh, new food products. I invented synthetic blueberries. But uh, whoa, whoa, I, whoa, whoa, whoa! Synthetic blueberries? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, they're in like uh, blueberry muffin mixes and cereals, uh, but they're you know they're pretty healthy. They're made from sodium alginate, which is a seaweed extract. Um, and, and, and who who are you doing that for? Uh, with Kraft General Foods. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't get a royalty on those, but uh, <laughs> but I was doing a lot of interesting projects in the science field, but I realized pretty quickly I wanted to run a business someday, and I didn't see any scientists at the time running businesses, so I um, that's why I went to Wharton, and um, and then after Wharton, I, I actually ended up going into consulting because I thought it would give me the broadest exposure to business problems and would prepare me to run a business someday, so I did that for a while then worked in the internet space, then worked in the branding space, and then uh, ended up being recruited to Nike. So how many years after Wharton did you go to Nike? Uh, it was probably like at least 10. Wow. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it was a while. Wow. I, I, I had no idea it was that long. Well, I want to hear about Nike, but before that, let's talk about your book, uh, The Closer. So... Um, it's a, it's a, first of all, is this your first book you've ever written? It is. And the title of it is uh, The Closer, but it says Ceiling Smashers, and then it says Book One. Like, you've already decided, I don't care what happens with this book, there, there's going to be more to come. Is that right? Yes. I was so confident in the success of this book, I already planned two other books. <laughs> wow. And are you working on those two other books right now? Uh, I have the second book outlined. I've started writing it. I'm uh, on the second chapter now. Um, the third book I've started to outline. So, um, so I'm, I've got ideas, but haven't haven't completed them yet. So hopefully, I'll get them written soon. I think. Uh, how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, well, it was actually unusual. I uh, wrote this book in ten months, and uh, which I'm told is pretty quick. It's um, very it quick. While I had, you know, my twin girls um, were just, uh, you know, infants at the time. But uh, I would kind of write in my head. I do. I did an outline, and then I would uh, have a chapter outline, and I have a notes page for that chapter. I'd think about it, and I'd kind of write in my head as I was, you know, taking them to the park and things. And then when they were taking a nap, I would just sit down, and I'd have like an hour and 15 minutes to just write. So that's how I did it, and I just was really focused. I'd write, you know, late at night and early in the morning, and I got it done in 10 months. Well, I think it's particularly interesting. Uh, when did the book come out? Uh, in Just in um, the fall, this past fall. Okay, and the, and the reason I'm fascinated by it is I think the timing is just perfect and with, mm-hmm. with the whole Me Too movement and everything. But you started writing this book before that was uh, was a big deal. So what was it with the, the timing of writing this book, and what was your inspiration behind writing the book? Well, it was really two things, uh, frustration and admiration. So on the frustration side, every time I read a fiction novel where there was a female business leader in the story, she was either, you know, really evil and diabolical and, you know, trying to crush the careers of other women or she was allowed to be successful, and uh, then she was, you know, completely neurotic in her personal life. So uh, there was just, you know, no portrayals, positive portrayals of women leaders, and um, I just I was surprised by that. And the admiration side of it was, you know, I I've met so many really amazing women 
who are, you know, CEOs or senior executives, and I thought nobody's writing about this type of person or, or even writing for them. So I really wanted to remedy that and, um, and bring a different character to life, you know, on the pages of a book. Well, let's talk about that character that happens to be in the book. The book is a, a fiction, but I've got to believe that there is more fact than fiction in here. So do, do you want to talk about that at all? And tell, tell us the whole theme of what the book's about. Sure. So uh, The Closer is about the first female CEO of a sports company and the secret society of professional women who help her succeed called the Ceiling Smashers. And the whole, um, you know, the whole kind of message and tone of the book is, is meant to be positive and aspirational and, and you know, um, collaborative. And I wanted to show women, you know, working with other women, women helping other women, and because uh, I, I do see that a lot nowadays, and I just I don't think anybody has been writing about it. So the the second part of the question that I asked you was about the character in the book, Vivian, who um, do you happen to know anyone that's like that? I, you know, Vivian's kind of an amalgamation, I think, of many people that I've either, you know, met or worked with, but, you know, I'll meet somebody and say, you know, this is such a great um, quality that they have, and I really want to, you know, incorporate that into the character. So it's not really like one person, but um, it's it's a combination of many, many people, I think. So did you, but, run, you, know, did you run a sports apparel company? Uh, I ran I ran Lucy Activewear and um, actually turned that business around in uh, a third of the time of expectations and I got it profitable for the first time in its 12-year history. But uh, and I also I ran a couple of businesses at Nike as well and turned them around. I ran the global cycling business when it was pretty troubled, and we got that to um, also to turn it around and, and grow revenues three hundred percent and get it profitable also for the first time. Uh, were you neurotic? Neurotic? Uh, you know, <laughs> other characteristics <laughs> that are often written about were character female characters in books. Uh, do I have those characters? Yeah. Uh, probably to some degree. I mean, you know, I think in this book, um, you know, Vivian is, is a pretty stubborn character and she doesn't give up and, you know, definitely I'm, I'm pretty stubborn as well. So, so I write that part from experience. Um, but, uh, you know, I think she's also more patient than I am. And, uh, and I just, you know, I wanted to portray somebody who wasn't perfect but, uh, you know, had flaws that you could relate to and um, and also had, you know, admirable qualities that, you know, you really, um, you know, felt like were, were positive qualities that you'd want to, you know, what you'd want to mimic. And you, and you write in there about this uh, secret group called the Ceiling Smashers uh, that Vivian belonged to. Uh, and obviously it's the glass ceiling that you're talking about and her ability to succeed in what is often a male-dominated environment. Uh, Did, uh, when you were at Wharton, was there a group like that? Well, Dave, it was a secret group, so I can't. So, okay, I won't won't talk about it, but (laughs) probably something fairly similar, I would think. There, yeah, I think, I mean, uh, we didn't really incorporate it, uh, you know, or brand it, but, you know, there was a group of, of people that, uh, men and women, actually, but um, a lot of women, and because we realized, you know, in, as we went out, off into our careers, you know, we'd be in the minority, and, um, and so we would we would actually help each other and discuss things like, you know, how to negotiate, you know, uh, salaries for job offers and um, just, you know, things to make sure you 
present well when you're when you're you know interviewing for a job. So you know, I think it was really great because you know just people gave each other tips, and then you know as I've gone throughout my career, I've kind of collected other ceiling smashers, and um, I've tried to help them with you know things that they've struggled with, and I've, I've certainly been able to get a lot of help from them. So. So it's you know I think it does exist in, in true life for a lot of people. Yes, there there were lots of sort of you know interesting things that I'm sure many people could relate to in the particular book. Now, talking about going and getting a job and and getting assistance along the way, you you got that job at Nike. Did you made it sound like they came and recruited you? Did you were you seeking that job or did they come after you? They actually um, came after me because I guess they were um, looking, there, were, there was a job they were trying to fill, and then they heard from three or four different industry sources that they should talk to me. So, um, so they came and, you know, they said, will you come out and, and talk to us about this job? And then there were actually four jobs that they uh, wanted me to look at. And so, I, you know, I went out there a couple of times. I met with a bunch of people. And then at the end of the last you know, trip that I had, I said, you know, I'd love to work here, but, you know, honestly, I don't think any of these four jobs is the right fit for me. So I'm going to, you know, have to say no. And they said, well, we're just going to hire you and we'll figure out what to do with you when you get here. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, I've never had a job offer where I don't know what I'm doing. But I said, you know, I, I want to run a business. So if you can, you know, put me on track to run a business I'll come on board. So um, so I joined, and, and that was what happened. Well, it was very clear that they were going after you. Why do you what do you think they saw in you that attracted them to uh, to trying to pursue you such that, you know, you could just say no and no and no, and they kept, they kept coming after you? Well, uh, I didn't say no too many times to them because, you know, obviously you know, they're a great place to work. Um, but uh, I think, you know, they were trying to inject some new thinking. And one of the things that was really challenging about Nike is that when they brought senior executives in from the outside, the average tenure was about 10 months. And so, wow. you know, they just kept trying to, you know, to hire people that could bring a different dimension, different way of thinking, new approaches. And I think they liked that I had a mix of, you know, industry experience and consulting experience and um, that I had turned around businesses and turned around brands. But uh, it was interesting because actually the moving company that packed up my New York apartment when I was moving to Portland, Oregon, um, it was the same movers that pack up all the executives. And I said, oh, you know, they said, oh, you're another executive moving out to join Nike. I said, yes. And I said, oh, you know, do most people stay out there? And they said, they all come back. <laughs> so I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't have sold my apartment after you're all. You're right. But, <laughs> but I ended up staying. You know, the funny thing about Nike is, you know, it's, it's got a definitely a, a tough culture to figure out how to navigate. And um, I think people don't really take you seriously until you've been there for at least two years because, you know, there's just so much turnover. So once you're there for two years, people are like, okay, you know, this person's probably going to stick around for a while. Wow. Well, you, uh, we're listening and you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're currently speaking with Shaz Kong, who is the author of The Closer and former executive at Nike and also ran her own business uh, that uh, Lucy Activewear, which she turned into a very, very successful and profitable business. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you want to know how to shatter the ceiling, uh, this is the right person to be talking to. So please do give us a call. So Shaz, uh, heavily male-dominated there at Nike? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> Most of the meetings that I was in, I was the only woman. And, and, uh, yeah. and, and how did that make it tough or did it help? Uh, I, you know, I think I had to just kind of adjust my style a little bit because um, I think the way people communicated ideas was quite different than what I had been accustomed to. And, um, and also just, um, I, I think, it, the thing that was tough for me, like I took over the, the global cycling business, and um, it was the first time a woman had ever run that business. And they told me I was the first woman at Nike to have a, a global business P&L, which surprised me because the company had been around since 1972, and this was like 2005 that I was you know, taking over the business. But you know, the whole team, most of the team, was male, and uh, most of them were avid cyclists. And so when I got this, you know, position, I went around. I met everybody, and everybody asked me the same two questions. You know, the first one was, "What do you know about the cycling business?" And the second question was, "What do you know about the sport of cycling?" To which, you know, both of them, I said, "Not much, but uh, I do know how to ride a bicycle." <laughs> and, you know, they didn't really laugh at that, but. Um, <laughs> You know, the thing that I was surprised about was that business for, you know, about six or seven years since its inception had never made a dime. And um, and I came in and I had, you know, new ideas about how we could change the strategy, the product, how we, we could inject more innovation. But I felt like the guys weren't giving me a chance just because I was a woman. And, and also because, you know, I didn't really know that much about cycling. But um, so for a minute, I kind of thought, wow, you know, can I can I really do this job? And but then I thought, wait a minute, you know, these guys have been working on this business for a long time and it's, you know, it's never made a cent. And uh, so, you know, surely I can't do any worse. (laughs) So I was like, I'm just going to go for it. And I um, actually the first meeting I had, it was a fully cross-functional meeting. And I laid about uh, 30 pairs of cycling shorts along this huge conference table because we had actually the highest apparel returns in, um, I think, out of any Nike business, and we're trying to figure out why. So I laid out these shorts, and some were really tiny, some were really huge, and I said, I'm going to, you know, I have this iPod shuffle, and I'm going to give it as a prize to whoever can correctly guess the size of every short on this table without looking at the label. So then people got excited, and they were like, extra large, you know, small, extra small. They went down the line, and I said, guess what, guys? These are all medium-sized. So we're not using standardized, you know, sizing specifications or fit blocks, and that is why our returns are so high. So I just kind of went through that meeting of, you know, methodically going through all the different areas where we were having problems and getting people to see the business with with fresh eyes. And um, I think that really helped them to open up their thinking and and be receptive to new ideas. So that was totally an operations issue and not a marketing issue, although undoubtedly it affected the brand itself. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and we also we had a lot of marketing issues too. Yeah, and how is it that they uh, that you were able to see that and they weren't able to see that, you know, they they didn't have standardized sizes? I don't know. I really don't know. I you know, I it was surprising to me and uh, and then it was surprising even to some of the people in the business and you know, they just they hadn't really collaborated before and, and you know, just a funny thing was also I think I was able to look at it as uh, from a customer point of view, and these guys were all avid cyclists, so they looked at it from you know kind of a professional cyclist point of view, and just a simple thing like we had three levels of quality of product, you know, good, better, best, 
And um, we were selling, you know, so I actually did an analysis of all, all the sales, and I said to the team, guess how many, you know, we have a pair of $60 shorts, you know, $85 and 105 Which ones are we selling more of? And they were like, oh, we don't know. I said, we're selling more of, you know, the 60 to $65 ones. And I said, why do you think that is? And they were like, well, you know, we don't know. I said, well, they look exactly the same as the $100 shorts. They're black, they're stretchy, exactly the same hang tag. So I said, why don't we recategorize the product into race day, training day, and every day. We'll have a different color-coded tag for each one, and we'll explain this is what makes a race day product the three things, you know, aerodynamic, moisture wicking, and super lightweight. Then the same thing for training day and the same thing for every day. So once we made that switch on the signage and the hang tags and the marketing, we sold a significant amount more in general, but uh, even more at the higher price points. Okay, so so that was a real breakthrough in really trying to establish sort of the different components of the of the brand. And speaking of the Nike brand, you know, since I just started the program talking about the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl is really special, did Nike has Nike ever run an ad on the Super Bowl? They have. I mean, typically they do something for the Super Bowl, but they didn't do anything this year. So I was a little surprised about that. Yeah. So. To run an ad in the Super Bowl, actually, I don't know how much you know about sort of the decisions at Nike to run that ad and trying to look at the economics of it. Um, How's that decision made of we're going to run Nike, what part of Nike it is that we're going to run on the Super Bowl and justifying that budget? Because one of the big questions is thinking about spending this year, it was a little bit more than $5 million for an ad. And how does one justify spending that amount of money? for an ad on the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Nike's marketing budget is enormous. I mean, it's like bigger than the GDP of some, some countries. Right. So, no, that's so right. They spend a lot of money. And, you know, I mean, like the Super Bowl ad is, is not a huge part of their budget. But um, typically what they would do is they would decide on, is there a big, you know, product push, like an innovation with like the, you know, the platform of the shoe, like Air Max or you know, or, you know, kind of like the lunar shoe. Um, so if there's like some new technology or like flyweave, um, so if there's something new that they think, oh, this is something that nobody's ever seen before and we really want to push the sales, they'll they'll spend the, the money for a Super Bowl ad. Um, but I think, you know, they, they typically, you know, they spend money doing just like brand enhancement ads um, for different categories of products. And um, I think in more recent years, I've seen them do a little more focused ads on more, you know, products and product launches and, you know, product innovation. Do, do they get sufficient lift to, to pay for the cost of, the, of doing an ad on the Super Bowl? I, yeah, I think if it's executed well, um, yeah, I mean, they do see a, a pretty good lift. And, and, you know, I remember when I was there, there was this shoe that they were introducing that um, actually was not, not a great shoe and it had some technical issues because they rushed it to – to release it so it would be in time for the, the advertisement. And um, the advertisement actually did drive sales. But, you know, in the end, we also got a lot of returns because people were having problems with the fit. Yeah, but, but it ended up getting a lot of sales for it. So my my great producer, Matt, just showed, uh, sent me a note saying that uh, Justin Timberlake's shoes last night during the halftime entertainment were, uh, were Air Jordan sneakers. Um, mm-hmm. And... Did uh, do you think Nike sort of compensated Justin uh, Timberlake for that? 
Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure they have. Well, I, you know, I would say a high probability, you know, or, you know, they custom made some amazing shoes for that for him. I mean, they, they would do that a lot um, for different, you know, celebrities and athletes. So, but, uh, so it's product placement, and and undoubtedly it was more than hey, we're going to give you a free pair of shoes that we're going to be paying you be, uh, to wear this, which is uh, is pretty interesting, and mm-hmm. and apparently he tagged himself on Instagram uh, with the shoes, or he tagged the shoes uh, on his Instagram. So again, it's sort of trying to get some publicity for it. So that that in itself is uh, is pretty fascinating. Again, let me remind our audience, you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're currently speaking with Shaz Kong, who is the author of The Closer and former executive at Nike. And she left Nike and started working at Lucy Activewear. So what was the decision that you had and how did it get you to, uh, to leave Nike? First of all, you had such a sweet job at Nike, and you're doing really well there at Nike. Um, <laughs> why did you leave? Uh, I was really enjoying a lot of what I was doing, but um, you know, towards the, the end of my tenure there at Nike, um, they had a big reorganization, and they reorganized into a three-dimensional matrix structure, which I think really, um, really kind of decreased accountability, and it also um, decreased the ability for people to make decisions. So they had seven sport categories, three product engines, and then four geographies, which they split into 17 geographies. It was really one of the most complicated organization structures I've ever seen. And I found it extremely difficult to just, you know, I I came from, you know, I had just come off of the experience of running the cycling business, which was very entrepreneurial. We broke a lot of records at Nike, you know, had a lot of success. And then they said, we created this new job for you. You're going to be the number two person in the global women's business. And we would be in meetings twice a week for an hour and a half, two hours with 45 people and, yes. you know, discussing can we, can we introduce a new lightweight training shoe globally with a consistent marketing campaign. And then, you know, people in Europe would say, no, we want a dance shoe. And the other people would say, you know, no, we want to focus on apparel. And, you know, it, because of the three-dimensional structure, nobody knew who could make the decisions. And so we'd have to say, oh, well, we have to wait for the next meeting when, you know, Fred and, and Sally can join us, and they can weigh in, and then we have another meeting to discuss it. So after a while, I was like, you know, this is just killing me. <laughs> it's just so slow. And um, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I wanted to run another business. And when I looked around, I just thought, in my lifetime, I'm not going to see a woman running football, basketball, um, you know, soccer, men's training. And, you know, basically I said the only category that I could run is the category I'm already the number two person in, and the number one, the, the number one person is, gonna, you know, going to be there for a long time, I bet. So I decided to leave. Wow. That had to be a hard decision because Nike is such a great brand, and as the company has a great brand, it contributes to your brand. But you went from there to Lucy Activewear? Yes. And And when you went to Lucy Activewear, I know you later – were the CEO? Did you start as the CEO there, or what happened? Uh, it's basically the the president and CEO title is the same thing. So I started as you know the president slash CEO, and um, I was the third um, president slash CEO in three years. So I had a lot of turnover, and uh, it was just I mean it was a really complicated um, turnaround. We had to turn around the product, the marketing, the business strategy, all the retail operations, you know, factory sourcing base. I mean, just every aspect of the company pretty much was broken. 
So it was exciting because, you know, every day you're making, you know, major decisions. But it was it was also, you know, it was very tiring as well. So you had to have this huge amount of courage to do that because you had such a sweet job there with Nike. And obviously you were held in high regard there at Nike. Great brand company that is not about to falter because it's so powerful. And then you go to Lucy Activewear, company in trouble. And uh, as you said, the, the president and CEO position seems to be, you know, a, a revolving door. What gave you the confidence and the courage that you could go and do that? Well, I had already turned around, um, you know, a couple of the businesses at Nike. So I felt like, okay, I've got that experience under my belt. But, I, you know, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's, you know, Nike's a great brand. And some of the people that I worked with there were just amazing. Um, and I had some experiences there that, you know, I could never replicate in another company. Um, and also everybody was like, oh, your sample size, you know, why would you leave? Because I was sample size for both apparel and footwear, so I could get, you know, basically a lot of free stuff. And, but then nice. I was like, well, how many, how many pairs of sneakers do I actually need? But, you know, the thing is, I also, um, I wasn't being challenged enough in the last role. I was really being underutilized. And I'm the kind of person that, you know, when I show up to work, I want to give, you know, my complete effort. And I want to be energized by the work that I'm doing. And I just really didn't feel that way. And, um, you know, and people said, oh, Shaz, you should just, you know, just, you know, work out a couple times a day, take long lunches, just enjoy it, you know, just coast for a while. And, and actually, because when I was leaving, I, I talked to the CEO and I said, I'd really like to run another business. And he said, we'd love for you to do that, but we don't have anything right now. And he said, can you just, you know, sit tight for, you know, for two or three years? And I just thought, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like kill myself if yeah. I'm in this, this position that long. I just, I can't do it. So. That's not the Shaz that I know that would just sit tight. So <laughs> I, I can see that. So at, at Lucy, what did you start doing? And, um, and in particular, I wanted to know what you were measuring that would tell you this would be the right steps to take and what, and these are the wrong steps to be taken. Well, I think the the biggest thing with Lucy, I mean, this is when um, the whole activewear segment was really starting to take off. And, you know, it was such a conundrum, you know, for me, you know, why is Lucy struggling so much? And when I got in there, um, it was a really interesting thing. Cause, you know, the, the way that people connect with, with the brand first and foremost is through products. So, you know, I said, let me figure out, you know, what the problems are with the product. And there, was, there are also a lot of problems with the brand. But with the product in particular, you know, when I, uh, a great example was, you know, I was looking at the, the new line that was going to be introduced, and they said, oh, Shaz, this is our, our premium running jacket. And I said, okay, you know, why is this a running jacket? And they said, oh, because that's how we're marketing it. And I said, okay, well, this jacket is not going to be purchased by somebody who runs. And they said, why? I said, well, uh, you know, it's got a hood, and j- pe- uh, runners don't like to run with jackets with hoods, and it had these long metal, um, or these long drawstrings with metal aglets at the end. And they said they're going to fly up and hit people in the face when they're running. So I said, I can guarantee no runner will run with this jacket. And I said, did anybody who worked on the design or development of this jacket, you know, is any, are any of those people runners? And they weren't. And the same thing with yoga product. You know, I try on some yoga product, and I said, why is there a big bow in the back of this, you know, top? Yeah. Because then when you're in Shavasana, you know, it's really uncomfortable. I said, did anybody who worked on this, you know, do they practice yoga? And again, the answer was no. So I immediately instituted these, you know, 
these power lunch, Lucy power lunch day. So Monday and Wednesday was like a boot camp workout and um, and uh, yoga, and then Tuesday and Thursday we did like a power walk or run. So and I said even if you don't want to participate, at least come and watch because if you're designing yoga product, you must know what moves people are doing and and how that informs the product design. So that one of the the major things was just the fit and the functionality of the product, which we immediately addressed. Another thing was just how we talked to the customer. It was, you know, I think you probably have seen this a million times, but when you don't have anything meaningful to say about your brand, your message is all about price. And we were just, you know, everything was like discounted, discounted. And we were sending 14 direct mail pieces a year and all with coupons. And I was like, you know, that seems like a lot. And so I said, we're going to immediately cut that down to four, three to four direct mail pieces a year. And I, don't, I said, because we looked at the redemption rate of the coupons and our target customer, and they weren't really using those coupons. So I said, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. And even if we see revenue dip in the first you know, couple months, I'm fine as long as we're trying to preserve margin. So we did that. We also slowly turned off the email coupons, and we replaced it with a better content strategy and we introduced a cross-training pant. We said, you know, 101 moves you can do in the cross-training pant. So I think because we had so much better content and more interesting messaging, we actually saw revenue increase and also margin increase. So you turned the business into a profitable business and ended up becoming part of North Face. And now you're off advising companies and uh, and writing books, which sounds like a fascinating thing to be doing but I suspect it's only temporary till you find your next thing you're going to start running, and uh, and, and that's that's going to be uh, most intriguing to to see where it is you're going. What I also find uh, pretty intriguing is that you looked at the people who were you know have, have you guys are you yoga users or are you guys runners, and critiqued them for that, but you weren't a cycler when you were at Nike, and. And yet you were able to see through that and always just be thinking about the the consumer and the everyday consumer. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think when you can put your, your yourself in the position of the consumer, you, you're always going to have insights that will help drive your business right. to, you know, be better. I think that's the right position to be. Shaz, I'm going to be looking for your next book and hearing what it is that's going to be next on your resume. Keep it up. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. We're going to need to uh, take a short break, but please do stay with us. When we get back, I'm going to take your calls on anything related to marketing, particularly anything related to the Super Bowl and uh, and Super Bowl advertising, branding, metrics, anything in our last 15, 20 minutes of the program. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 